Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, welcome to our Christmas episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Each year, we try to cover some sort of holiday-themed movie, and this time around, we're having some fun with that definition. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, by the way, and with me, as always, is my best friend, co-host, and definitely a man that I would want at my own roundtable, Patrick. Happy Christmas, sir. Yes, Merry Christmas to you. Maybe I should have said Sir Patrick yeah, to make this a little it. more official. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll well, take it. well, The Green Knight isn't a Christmas movie in the traditional sense that one may think of, but it does start and end on Christmas days one year apart. So it's kind of hard to argue its relevancy, if you ask me. But no matter, that's not a point we're here to discuss. But what we are going to talk about is going to include full spoilers. We are here to go deep into this film, to talk about our reactions to it as a whole, and that is going to include completely and utterly dissecting it as best we can uh, in our own way. So if you have not seen the film, please seek it out. Give it a rental. I believe it was in theaters. It probably was a limited release. It's there to stay, especially with Spider-Man. Spider-Man's kicking out in even new movies. I can't imagine re-releases are surviving in theaters right now when Spider-Man just went over a billion dollars, by the way, during a pandemic. Can you imagine what that movie would have made not in a pandemic? I think it would have made... I wonder... This is as a side. I think it would have made the same amount because I think Spider-Man is a big enough property that people don't care about about oh so you're saying for the most part the pandemic's effect on its box office is probably I, very minimal low. this late in the game anyway i think yes we're still in a pandemic but we're in a pandemic that is different than the one last year where we know more and we're not getting into that but i think that the fact is spider-man is gonna do what spider-man does and that is make money for sony and marvel it's very true okay well we're here to talk about not the red and blue web slinging night but the green one that was a terrible transition. And or the Dark Knight? Or the Dark Knight? No, not the Dark Knight either. Not right. that guy. No, that would be a very different movie. Right. Uh, Batman, not exactly the most virtuous either, to be honest. So it might be more fitting. Anyway, Sir Garwin. I'm going to call him Garwin just for fun because... Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, I, uh, I wish in the notes you would have put Garwin, like spelled it phonetically, because I just want to go, who's Gawain? Because nobody oh. calls him Gawain. I told my wife when we were watching this, I said... I don't know how you get Garwin from G-A-W-A-I-N. It just does not make sense to me. But if I say Gawain, it's only because I'm looking at the notes. Garwin, Garwin, Garwin. Garwin it's... Gardens. Garwin my watch. <laughs> Garwin I'm, Gardens. I'm trying to think of Garwin. Okay, so I apologize in advance if I mispronounce the consistent name that we're trying to use, which is Garwin. Well, I've always called it Gawain, right? I've said that has been his name for me as so long as I've lived up until I saw this movie. And Sean Harris to me is phenomenal as King Arthur in this movie. I think Sean Harris is always phenomenal in everything Sean Harris does. He's just one of those character actors that for me stands out in every piece he's in. And when he said that the first time, I was I remember vividly in the theater. I was just kind of gave my own self a side eye like what just happened what is he talking about there's no garwin in this story but i have consumed a ton of youtube videos and i reread the poem itself actually didn't reread the poem i listened to the tolkien 
version of the poem, which is really, really good. And I just did a lot of deep dives into this. And I guess that's the traditional kind of Scottish pronunciation for it or what have you. So whatever, you know, it's it's fine. It's medieval. Not all the names are always going to line up. But this is adapted from a 14th century poem, Sir Garwin and the Green Knight. It is famously by an unknown author. So that's interesting to me is that this is like really one of those stories that has been passed down over the years and no one knows who wrote it, even though it's kind of become adopted into part of the Arthurian legendarium. And one thing I noted in this most recent watch was the opening. And I had never really taken the time to kind of listen to what was being said and I was able to put on subtitles this time and go slow and pay attention to it. And a couple things are interesting. It is quoted by Alicia Vikander, who plays dual roles in the film. It's kind of hard to know that by just hearing the voice because it doesn't necessarily sound just like her. But the opening crawl essentially says, look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since the earth was born. And of all who reigned o'er, none had renown like the boy who pulled sword from stone, Arthur. But this is not that king, nor is this his song. Let me tell you instead a new tale. I'll lay it down as I've heard it told. It's letters sent, it's history pressed of an adventure brave and bold, forever set in heart in stone, like all great myths of old. And I found this really interesting for a couple of reasons. Number one, or I guess mostly, is that it specifically says in this kind of opening poetic monologue, let me tell you instead a new tale. And while in the context of the monologue, it's saying this is not Arthur, but what is interesting about this film is that David Lowry's adaptation is not a direct one-for-one one of the famous poem and how it progresses. The beats are there, but some things are very different. Specifically, how it ends is, is one of the major ones, and we're going to have to talk about that eventually. But I liked this a lot because I felt like it set that up, and it also doesn't really foretell a bunch of action. It doesn't talk about this is going to be a big... King Arthur-like sword and sorcery setting where you're going to see people fighting dragons and having a big amounts of combat. It talks about, you know, games and visions, and it kind of gives you the vibe that you're really listening to this mythological story that's been passed down over time. And I thought it was great because I think it set the tone for the kind of movie we were going to get right off the bat. And I wanted to start there. I was not expecting this, and I should have because I'm a David Lowry fan. I love all of his films, especially A Ghost Story and the surreal nature of that. So I shouldn't have expected any less. But even so, you think going into this, it's called The Green Knight. Like it's titled after a type of character who is known for swinging a sword or an axe or you know, carrying a lance and proving themselves in combat of some kind. And yet that's not 
this type of movie that we get, did that have an effect on your viewing? Were you shocked by what you saw, Patrick, initially? I just kind of wanted to get a vibe for like your first experience with this because I was recommending it heavily, but I was also pretty nervous, to be honest. Well, to give you a little backstory, obviously, I, I mentioned on the show, fantasy, those types of genres don't necessarily appeal to me. Although I absolutely love the Once and Future King. I love the Arthurian story in small doses. I enjoyed reading it. T.H. White is a phenomenal author. And typically, if there's anything around the Arthurian lore, I'm probably going to be vested in it. I didn't have any history with the poem. I had no idea what this was about. I'm also not as familiar with Lowry as you are, although I know of his stuff and I know that he does offer those surreal types of stories that tell a greater story, whether you're dealing with grief or things like that. And I'm all for that. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm against David Lowry. I need to I need to watch these other movies because the things I've heard about them and after watching The Green Knight, it makes me want to go in and really kind of look at his filmography with that kind of lens. So going in, I had, I would say, middle of the road expectations. It's one that I was not going to put on my radar as like, yes, this is definitely something I'm I'm into. But you've got Dev Patel in a leading role, which I'm not going to say no to. I really, really like him in pretty much anything that he's in. I've loved him since the days of newsroom and i think that his performance forget he was even in that i know like, so you think about that was that pre-slumdog or no 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 it was post slumdog but that's where Ooh. i really and I, I knew him from slumdog but i really got to know him as a as a character or as an actor because of new newsroom because i lived with him for three seasons as opposed for you know two hours in this movie he's great in slumdog too it makes me want to go back and watch that but when I when I watched The Green Knight, it made me feel a lot like how I feel about Christopher Nolan in relationship to like Dunkirk, where we have this story that's being told, but it's being used really as a catalyst to tell a different story, to set you up for feeling something a little bit different. So where Dunkirk is a historical story that is really emphasizing the idea of survival. I think that's what Lowry's doing here. He is taking a legend that exists within the Arthurian lore and is really putting his spin on it and using it as a caveat to tell this story. And it definitely takes multiple viewings to appreciate. And when I say appreciate, it, I mean respect, I mean enjoy, I mean understand. This is not like Primer. This is not like you have to start going down deep, deep rabbit holes to really understand what's happening. There are definitely great voices out there that have video essays that helped me understand it a little bit more, especially on my second viewing, having some of that in my head as I was watching it. But I also appreciated and enjoyed the fact that it's a good story. It's not just a series of scenes that are trying to amplify an overall theme, that there is a point A to point B to point C. I told my wife about it because she's into the period pieces. And I told her after watching it the first time, 
I'm going to say 50-50 that you'll enjoy this. The other 50 was really accented by what she said at the end, which is, what did I just watch? <laughs> because it's Common really, it's, it's, it's very valid. And I know that can be frustrating, especially when, even if you don't have an expectation about a story, you do have an expectation about a flow. And so what Lowry does that's really interesting is he is very much an artsy guy. Like we get captions and titles, we get cuts in the story where there are clear breaks. And we look at titles in a somewhat unfamiliar font. And we say, wait, what did that just say? These are the things that I responded to the first time. I would not have liked watching this in the theater because I would have felt like I'd missed something. So it was nice to watch it at home and say, wait, am I reading The Green Knight? There's a dot, dot, dot. Does that mean there's another part of this title that's coming later? And so all of those things I think were a little jarring going in the first time, but preparing myself ahead of time, specifically for the podcast, but also for my own enjoyment, really did make it a a much better movie because there is value in being familiar with the story. I remember when we covered Much Ado About Nothing. I can't remember which one. It was the Joss Whedon, black and white, modern modern tale of what? Yeah, it was a house party that he literally threw at his house that had exactly. his friends come over. <laughs> exactly. But when you read Shakespeare, you really have to have the map beforehand. You have to know the events of the story because you get so caught up in the dialogue. And that's what I really felt going into The Green Knight the first time is I thought, man, I watched something amazing. I don't understand half of it. I need to get on the internet. So watching it the second time with more of that knowledge, with the familiarity, really made it a lot better. So to answer your question from like an hour ago, I did not have high expectations for it, but it wasn't because I wasn't looking forward to seeing it. And so it really met my expectations and it surprised me, which I think is something that we're missing sometimes in movies is movies that do something a little different and to take a poem and to create an hour and a half to two hour film and have creative liberty. It allows me to think more about what's happening in there. And obviously it creates a coffee talk conversations while we're talking now, but it also really gets me curious about what other Arthurian stories are out there beyond just the Knights of the round table and the sword and the stone. My son and I, we just got done reading Mary Pope Osborne's Magic Treehouse series. We've been plowing through it over the last year, and it centers around, who else? Merlin as a magician. Well, it centers around these two kids, but they meet Merlin, and who else do they meet? Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay is definitely not the Morgan Le Fay that we meet in this movie, but in this last book that we read, the author points out, Mary Pope Osborne points out that Legends are really important because they may not give you an accurate depiction of history, but they tell you about what was important at the time that those legends were being orally uh, orally created and handed down. And so when you watch something like The Green Knight, if I know that Lowry is taking some creative liberties, I also know that what he's not doing is taking away the essence of what that poem is trying to say and what it's trying to articulate and the importance of 
what was going on in the time in which it was written. So for me, it's kind of a fantastic movie because it's multi-layered and it makes me really want to sit down and digest it with someone and to just kind of go through and say, okay, when this happened, what were they saying? And we may actually start doing that tonight. I don't know how late this episode is going to go. Maybe three hours. Who knows? But regardless, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I'm excited to hear your thoughts and what we're going to be kind of digging into. Good. I'm so glad. That was one of my nerves. I, I worried when you told me you were recommending it to your wife. I was like, uh-oh. So if it was a 50-50 shot on you liking it, and then it's a 50-50 for her from there. We're talking it's like, like 25-25. 25% chance at that point. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, it's um, it, it's a tough one. And I, I was on the opposite side of what you just said. I was glad that I did get to experience in a theater because it has been the movie of the year for me that has stuck with me the most i think and just it's gotten inside my head and it's rattled around in there and it was one that i was very excited for going into the year but also very nervous about i mean i am predisposed to loving fantasy and high fantasy stuff like this and i like david lowry but a24 can be real hit and miss with me I, i can when you art something up so to speak some of it extremely resonant for me other parts can be just terrible and so i loved my reaction to it and walking out of the theater with a true just wtf feel about myself like what did i just watch and not fully understanding it all but having enough to grasp onto to think that i had something to think about and somewhere to go and start to learn and research and look up opinions and see what everyone else thought and then get to watch it again and dive into the special features, which I highly recommend, by the way, to anyone listening here. If you get this movie on 4K or DVD, it is well worth watching all of the featurettes that express how this film was made. One of the things we're not going to get really deep into or anything, but, you know, this movie was made for, I want to say it was like $15 million and it was made during a pandemic and it was incredible looking and sounding it is intoxicating pretty much every single frame and what he is able to do with that budget is truly remarkable and worthy of recognizing and some of the ways that they created effects and they really went deep into the cultural aspect of where the story was set this medieval setting over in the isles uh, Scotland, Britain, Ireland area, it makes a lot of sense, but they did their due diligence right down to one of the fascinating things I remember learning about the movie was how some of the things that they wore were, I think they said that they were vegan. They had the costume director came in and like figured out a way to make this fabric that was not of an animal or of anything else. And, and it was like really just intriguing, intriguing stuff that I'd never seen before about a movie. So highly recommend the special features as well. Okay, let's get into it though. And we'll start with, I guess, the game. I mean, the movie opens and one intriguing 
starting point is that it starts in a brothel. That's our first introduction to Garwin. He's with Alicia Vinghander's first character of two that she plays named Essel, who's a prostitute who has great affection for him. And in my opinion, seems to be the most virtuous person in the entire film, even though she's a prostitute, which is pretty interesting in and of itself. And a great connection or parallel that all she really wants to do is love him and be taken out of this world. And she's willing to do that. And he's not able to make that choice yet. But her first line of dialogue in the film, I guess it's the first line at all, other than the voiceover, is praise the Lord, Jesus Christ was born because it's Christmas Day. And for that to be uttered in the context of where they are and who she is, is interesting, I think. And we see Garwin as this supposed knight, and I think that's important too. I don't even know if people listening, mostly will probably pick up on this, but the fact that he's not a knight, this is not, <laughs> that's the whole kind of point. Like he is going through a trial of sorts, a test over the course of the film of the kind that would prove whether his demeanor was worthy of being a knight, not he already is one. And so, but you have this character who you think of as he's supposed to be knightly, and here he is in a brothel. And he rushes off, obviously, to the Christmas celebration dinner or whatever they're having. And this is where everything kind of comes to happen. And Patrick, were you familiar with the story going in at all? Did you know what was going to happen? No, I was not. Oh, <laughs> Again, blind spot. Literally, I was blind to the whole. I knew there was a night. I knew Dev Patel was going to do something phenomenal. And I knew there was a guy that looked like a tree. And I was like, OK, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> right. Let's do it. All right. So the design of the Green Knight is also really awesome in this film. Oh, sign. Yeah. Towering, imposing in the original telling of this. It's actually kind of similar to how. Uh, Treebeard in the Ents are handled in Lord of the Rings because in in the real lore they're much smaller and they're more like man-like with kind of branchy features but like a, a they're kind of like a human face to them versus what they designed both Treebeard and then here with the Green Knight they really made them like into like a moving tree in a sense and that was oh uh, it's just so much more terrifying the the sound editing just real quick was amazing in those scenes where you hear the limbs creaking oh i loved it so good well and i think the setting is just so well done because this is a medieval feast there's not anyone playing music so there's no music in a lot of places and it's a big stone room i think that's all it is is it's table and a big open area and some people drinking out of wooden cups that's what they did right it's not like there's a pinball machine in the corner and somebody's hanging out there or you know chatting it up at the bar those things don't exist in this world and so you have the head of the table with arthur and his wife queen guinevere and we get introduced to them and garwin comes in and there's a really great amount of dialogue i think between him and arthur just that sets things up so well and essentially he's saying hey, you're my nephew. 
I know you're not one of these knights. And he even tells him, look around you. What do you see? And he says, I see legends, Garwin does, talking about the knights of the round table that are all over there. And he says, do not take your place amongst them idly. Which is a great, like, warning in a sense, but also just a caution and saying, listen, these men are worthy. They have accomplished things. And th there's nothing wrong with you having not necessarily done that yet, but you can't just go through life just chilling here. Like you're going to have to earn your keep at some point is, is essentially what he is saying. But he also tells him, you know, I regret that I didn't get to know you better and I haven't spent enough time with you. And so what I want is I want you to sit at my right hand and I want you to be a part of this. And that's when I think Queen Venevere asks him to tell a tale of himself and he can't. And you can see it. Del, Del Patel's acting in this is so great. One of my favorite performances of the year because he does a lot with expressions. You can really feel in his body language his shame at a hundred different points in this movie. But that's one of them where he's like, I don't have anything to say. I'm not, I'm not motivated, right? He's my son, Pat Patrick. Basically, he is my Tyler. He is a good person at heart sometimes. You really, that really does, you can see it. There are moments when that, when he's with Essel and alone with Essel, that shines through some in the way in the, the, the kindness and the gentleness he treats her with. But there are moments with the fox even that he shows that kindness to. But then overall, he's got this laziness to him and this lack of, motivation and a very a sense of self-preservation above all that really drives him and i love that guinevere just says yet almost you know kind of like prophetic like she knows like at some point this is a world where this is what happens you are going to go and make a name for yourself or you're going to fade into obscurity and be nobody forever you can't just be in the middle yeah and i think what's really interesting about that conversation aaron is the fact that at no point do Arthur or Guinevere force him to make a choice. Like when the Christmas game starts and when there is a choice that's being given, he steps up. And there's a part of me that thinks, oh, it's because he had that conversation with Arthur and with Guinevere. But I didn't sense that in terms of them trying to coerce him into being great. I think you almost have in the voice of Arthur's a conscience who says, you know what you want, but you have to do what it takes to get it. And so there are these great nonverbal cues that Arthur gives him, that he gives Arthur when he makes the choice to compete in this game or to participate in this game. And when he hands him Excalibur, I mean, that's a pretty monumental thing because, oh man, because Garwin's saying, I need a sword. Who will give me a sword? And Arthur's like, What's I got it? you, dude. I got you, man. <laughs> it's another you just... single of his shame, too, that yeah. is coming out. He's like, I'm here I am in this court, and I'm surrounded by knights. And, like, I don't even have a sword. <laughs> yeah. And so I think it speaks to what she says when she says, do not take your place amongst them idly. I also felt as though he use that moment to be able to really recognize that he was 
he ended up showing a false sense of accomplishment because when he chops the knight's head off he and when the knight leaves he does almost the way he does the speech like that announcement that he makes almost feels a little bit scripted and that's ironic because we're we're listening to a script but the point being it didn't feel like it was coming from garland it felt like it was like this is what a knight's supposed to say and so i'm going to say that and i think that's really interesting because what we find is that he is he feels nothing about that he feels he doesn't feel any of that genuinely as the next two or three scenes really show us he's getting drunk in a bar he's fighting with village people and he is doing nothing that is showing his ability to be knightly he is just at this point a bully he's a guy who chops off heads in fact his conversation with Essel is so fantastic when they're in bed and she is talking to him about his experience about you know how was it and she said were you scared and he goes no and i'm like what you were totally scared yeah, man you were scared to death and but the fact that the guy didn't the fact that the green knight did not do anything i think gave him this false sense of pride and it's such a great setup for what we end up watching him go through because it's his whole journey aaron is a pride buster it's all about at least in part, a good chunk of it is about him getting honest about not only his accomplishments, but what he's really afraid of, what he can really do, what his ultimate abilities are, both mentally and physically. And so that scene is such a great setup at the at the feast because it's what we would normally read in an Arthurian story or a medieval story like, oh my gosh. The, the young knight took the sword from Arthur and he chopped the green knight's head off and the knights cheered. I think that that was probably in his head based off of what we see later, these supposed potential hallucinations or these sequences that he goes through. I'd like to believe that that's in his head, that he says this massive speech, but it's really not. Because if, if that were the case, why wouldn't he be more famous? Why wouldn't he be well-respected? Why are we seeing him a year later drunk in a bar fighting with locals as opposed to being one of the knights? Why is he not being knighted at this point? And so there's a part of me that thinks, I don't know if that whole sequence actually happened minus him chopping the knight's head off. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And the hallucination thing is an interesting point. And I, you're right. There are multiple moments. Again, David Lowry with the surrealism Sometimes you're not 100% sure. There's, he's an unreliable narrator at times. And what is, I think, really happening is Arthur's reaction, the Queen's reaction. So it's very clear to me that they can see what's about to happen and what he's about to do and don't want him to do that. And they make it very obvious. I think there's even a line of dialogue that maybe she says or or arthur says that is very says something about like think through what you're about to you know do and what you're what you're going to choose here but i think that they they've been around the block and they can see through the guise of the game pretty much right away that it's trick and he he doesn't know that and and what it reminded me of so well was just that feeling of being pressured into something and not the kind of pressure that 
someone puts on you intentionally, but the kind of pressure you put on yourself to live up to something. Garwin wants to be, to prove Arthur wrong, or he wants to prove him, I guess, right, I guess. He wants to say, listen, I'm worthy of being right here at your side. So let me act big. Let me step up and take this challenge. He's shaken in his boots. And in his mind, the reason that he slices off the neck, or like to me, the reason he slices off the neck of the Green Knight is not to show a measure of strength to the knights. It's again, I think, self-preservation, which we will come back to over and over. His belief being, and the whole test, <laughs> the whole setup, the point is, if you slice the head off, your thought is, it's over. I've won. I don't have to face the consequences. And to me, that's what this was all about, is he is a character who is trying to avoid consequences at every turn for his actions. He wants to take the shortcuts. He wants to just skip from A to C, not go through B, but just become a knight and be at the table and sit there with Lancelot, drink it up, etc., and be fine, right? And he doesn't want to have to go through that process. And so this is a shortcut that has now been put him before him. Cut this guy's head off, get all his praise, you win. You don't have to worry about him returning the blow because you killed him. I mean, he's like completely emotionless when he kills this thing, right? I mean, there's no sorrow or anything. And, and it's intriguing to me because the knight is never, he's imposing. He's never scary. He doesn't threaten them. He doesn't come in and be like, I'm going to slice you all up if you don't choose, you know, choose to take my game. He simply comes in, presents an option and a test and asks if anyone wants to take it, you know, and, and that is they could say no, <laughs> they could say no, but it was crafted as we see via witchcraft. And that's another, so that's another like major part of this legendarium, right? We have Merlin, we have Morgan Le Fay. So one interesting thing is Morgan Le Fay is not actually Garwin's mother in the original stories those characters have been blended together as well as in a couple other places. And I wanted to read this. Someone had asked Lowry about that in an interview. And he said, very pointedly, we did not give any of the characters other than Garwin, Essel, and Winifred a name. No one is named. King Arthur is just the king. Merlin is just the wizard. Morgan Le Fay in our story is Garwin's mother. We wanted to embrace what the original poem did which was have Morgan Le Fay be the character who is kind of pulling the puppet strings behind this whole thing. But I wanted to make her aim and her plot integral to Garwin's journey. So the reason we're talking about that is why is the Green Knight there, right? What is the purpose of this? Is she there? Is she crafting this situation? Let me ask you, I'm going to ask you this question and we'll go from there. In your head, when you watch this movie, what did you think the purpose of the knight showing up was to evoke? Like, what was, who was he trying to get to come at him? And what was the ultimate end game of him showing up supposed to be? Well, because we see that Garwin and his relationship with his mother are important. Good job on the name. Good job. You did it. Sorry. I have it written down in my notepad here. Oh. Phonetically. Hey, you know what? Garwin, Essel, King, <laughs> even though I say Arthur and Guinevere, because, you know, 
That's who they are. Let's just be it's honest. Fair. Lowry, fair. come on. Let's do this. So watching those two interact, we see an importance. We see this great little banter when he runs up the stairs and she's like, where are your shoes? Where are your boots? And I love the line where she goes, where have you been? And he goes, I've been at mass. And she smells him and she says, yeah, I can tell you've been at mass. Have you been drinking the sacraments all night? But there's this great just banter between the two of them. Watching her character do what she did, I feel like it, for me, ties into what Arthur was saying, that his sister's son is someone who is valuable, but he didn't take the time to really pour himself into, to mentor, if you will. And so I think that if she's crafting this spell and creating the Green Knight, I think it's a push. I think this is the coming-of-age moment for Garwin. And I don't know that she could have controlled any other knight stepping in to take the challenge, but I think she knew her son enough to know what he struggled with, the fact that he is out all night. She knows where he's been. She knows he's not going anywhere. She's got this connection with the king. To me, I think this was her opportunity to really push him in a direction where he had to go on this adventure. He had to do this thing. He had to be prompted, to put it bluntly. He had to be kicked in the butt. And I think that she was the one that knew that. And that's why she put this in front of the uh, the round table. I love this because that's a very normal reading, I would say. And I think that that is probably the most obvious reading. And it was mine the first time I watched it. And as you watch it more and more, this movie does and reveals itself with these layers and you get to do the things that we love to do with movies we talked about, like X-Mac and all the time, where you start to kind of look at it from different perspectives and you dig into the details. I question that honestly now because I wonder some of the ways that Morgan Le Fay's face is shot when things are happening make me curious if that was really the goal. And now this does point to a, a needing an understanding of the lore going in because you would have to really know that her goal has and always will be to usurp the throne of King Arthur. Otherwise, that's why you get that obvious reading, right? Like the movie in and of itself with no exterior information makes you think, well, you know it's her son. So of course she would be doing this in some way for her son. But I think there's also an interesting aspect of what if Arthur was the one to take that challenge? Arthur's the one that should be doing it. There's no reasonable expectation that it would be her son. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know how she would ever have predicted that Garwin would, of all the knights in that room and King Arthur, be the one to, without a sword, step up and suddenly be in that. She didn't provoke the dialogue between he and Arthur and Guinevere on that very night. She had no idea what was going on there. So... I wonder also if maybe she thought it was going to be Garwin, or uh, sorry, be Arthur, who in his very old and enfeebled state ends up going and doing this thing and then having to undertake this quest. And ultimately, maybe it leads to his doom because he makes the wrong choice or whatever the case may be. But either here nor there, I just love that there's multiple layers to the reasoning behind this. 
Um, you could also yeah. say, if you look at it the way that you described, which was my first way, and I think it's still my my main way of thinking at it. I just like to consider the options. She sort of achieves her goal by proxy through her son being able to usurp the throne because I think she knows her son is controllable. Her son is weak by nature and essentially she is putting him in a position to then take the throne from Arthur after the fact and thus she is essentially gaining it herself in a way if he reaches that height and then she gives him the, the sash the magic bean that will help him be protected you know from any harm which is also just an incredibly fascinating idea because i don't think for her it has anything to do with chivalry it has nothing to do with actually becoming a virtuous person and that leads me to this where i'm in that middle place you know like what was the goal did she did she really want him to become virtuous and undergo these tests to overcome them and come back a chivalrous knight or does she really want someone to go on this and end up dying on the quest it's it's an interesting kind of potential there i think it, it is it could and be I either one it could be i think the first interpretation makes more sense in the context of if I'm Lowry, the audience that I am presenting this to is not going to know the history of her. The fact that he has chosen not to give her a name or Arthur or Guinevere, that tells me that you use the obvious interpretation to get your audience to feel for Garwin and for her and for the characters in here, but you almost get a little bonus for those that know the backstory about her. And that interpretation can be equally delicious because you have this really great ulterior motive. I, for one, did not ever feel like she was being noble or virtuous in what she was doing. Witchcraft, in and of itself, has a negative connotation. If Merlin was doing this or the supposed wizard, I would have felt differently. I never felt like Morgan or this or his mother was doing something for an ulterior motive. I felt as though she was giving him tough love, which is you could call that virtuous, but I think it's more manipulative than anything else because she wants something. In this interpretation, she wants him to be successful. In the historical or the legendary interpretation, she wants the throne. In any case, the common ground there is that she's being manipulative and she's the one controlling this. And I think that that's the thing that's easily latched onto. And I think that's what really allows Garwin's journey to get kicked off in the right way is that, okay, it's not just some mysterious night. If we didn't have any of those scenes with her creating the letter and then sending it up in smoke and all this other stuff that was happening, it really would have felt a little bit disconnected. There wouldn't have been some kind of okay, what's happening behind the scenes type of idea, which wouldn't have made the story as interesting as the one that we got. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the safest way to look at it. <laughs> but it, I, I just love it. I just, I guess I just enjoy the fact that when you play with something people have familiarity with, that you can put that layer in that, you can shoot it in a way in which it 
creates a conversation or a potential for these other ways of looking at it or these kind of subsequent on the side reasonings to the main reason as yeah. well. Well, Whereas think, you can watch it and you don't even need to know that and it doesn't affect your viewing at all. That's the thing. Exactly. And that's where I think really good storytelling is, especially when you're coming at it from a familiar, whether it's historical or anecdotal, whatever the approach is, if there's a place of familiarity, when you leave out certain things like names of people, the king, the queen could be any other legendary king or queen. Excalibur is never mentioned. But we know because we're familiar with that story. And so I think that's what really great storytelling allows you to do is when you can leave that element, it then opens up more interpretation, which allows for more understanding of the story. And I think Lowry would tell both of us, I like both of those approaches. I like the both of those types of ways of thinking about this because it leads to an interesting conclusion. It doesn't muddy the waters because it's... I would say it's not a choose your own adventure type story because you're eventually going to get to the same ending, but how you get there, the way in which you see certain scenes and how they're shot, how he uses a tracking camera in certain scenes is going to make you feel differently based off of what you already know about these supposed characters that are nameless, but could be and probably are the characters that you're familiar with. So the absence of those things, the unreliable narrator really does open up the possibility for more interesting interpretations. And he would probably tell you they're not the right or wrong ones. They're just different. That's what I think really great cinema graphic art is all about. It's being able to leave you going, hmm, that's really interesting. What about this? It's yeah. a good question. Let's talk about that. And I, if that's a byproduct of his storytelling then i definitely think those who are attracted to that need to jump on board and start chopping off knight's heads with <laughs> you know with with garwin well i do wish we had more i just totally quick side tangent but i go on runs all the time as you know when i get into something i want more of that thing whatever that thing is and so i tried to find as many of the previous iterations of this tale that have been filmed as I could. There's some really awesome, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 year old one that's animated. It's a short film and it essentially is shot like a stained glass painting. It's the only way I can describe it. It's mesmerizing visually. And that was awesome. It was on YouTube. And then there are countless YouTube videos I watched about this. Obviously I dove into the special features but I wanted more. Like I wanted to go re I rewatched Excalibur. Um, I rewatched King Arthur. The is it? I think it's a Guy Ritchie movie. I can't remember. I always get Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughn confused. But I think it's Guy Ritchie uh, who did the King Arthur movie with Charlie Hunnam, which is obviously vastly different. But I just wanted more of this. And there's actually not as much as you would imagine about King Arthur out there in the world of cinema for something that. I guess is probably in the public, whatever it's called, where things are available. Public to domain. You. Yeah, public I, domain, I would assume yeah. it is like Sherlock Holmes uh, in public domain. I don't think you have to yeah. pay anybody rights to use this stuff. So, I, I wish there was more. I want more. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't want sequels. I just want more unique tellings of things. Anyway, let's get on into the meat of the movie now. So the game has been laid. 
there is an awesome, awesome transitional moment. Like you talked about the waking up with Essel. I love how we just cut to a year later and we're going on the quest now uh, or not. Is it? Yeah, it's a year later. And we're going on the quest now. And we don't need to worry about what's happened in that year and how he's essentially done nothing to prepare himself. <laughs> he's probably just trying to avoid thinking about it. And there's the puppet show. I love the puppet show and how it kind of makes it a joke. Like, oh, you're going to die. But it tells it in this fanciful way as if maybe you won't because it's just a puppet show. But you're really going to get your head cut off. So we have that moment with her. And there's this great exchange of dialogue where they're, they're uh, he's about to leave. And he says, I gave my word. She says something about like, why do you, do you really have to go do this? As any normal person would to a person about to set off on this quest. And he says, I gave my word. I made a covenant. And she says, this is how silly men perish. And he says, or how brave men become great. And this is my favorite line of the movie. She says, I'm going to co-sign already because I know exactly what you're going to say. It's great. Go ahead. Yeah. She says, why greatness? Why is goodness not enough? Mm. And before we go too much into the specifics of each quest challenge, which is what I want to do, I wanted to talk about this because the crux of his setting off and just undertaking this at all, there is a really intriguing commentary being had here about medieval chivalry and morality and Christian values, which are all intertwined into this type of myth. And this whole group of dialogue is just so powerful to me because he says, you know, I, he starts it off. I gave my word. I made a covenant. Okay. I made a promise. And now I have to do that no matter what. Right. And her response being, this is how silly men perish. There's a huge question right there. It, is it silly? Is it silly to keep your word and your bond, even if you may perish because you did it? Or are you being silly? And is it ridiculous to keep your bond at such a level that it may make you perish? And then he says, oh, how brave men become great. You know, obviously identifying his world that he lives in, these men that he's around, these knights of the round table, this is what happens. You go on a quest. You have something happen. You have a story to tell. You do something that upholds the knightly virtues in some way, and you are recognized as great. It's very much a being recognized for your good deeds, in a sense, kind of world that he lives in. And he hasn't the good deeds to put forth, but also because he's not really a good man either at heart and so he has neither to fall back on but then she says that why greatness why is goodness not enough and for me patrick that is definitely the line that i I walked out of the theater it was engraved in my brain when i eventually get some sort of artwork for this movie to put on my wall which i intend to i want it to include that quote i think that is the thing that above and beyond i took away from it because it's the question i could put to myself in a relatable way more than anything else. And it isn't this all encompassing thing that has to, I don't have to think, I can think about it in terms of my whole life, 
but I can think about it in terms of every choice I make, to be frank. You can think about it in terms of podcasting, in, in terms of this episode, why greatness? What At what point do I, what do I pour into this at what cost? When does the cost exceed? When does the juice, you know, exceed the squeeze? Now that's not the phrase. Uh, whatever. Now I can't remember this stinking analogy. Um, the juice is not worth the squeeze. That's what it is. Because you squeeze so hard and you only get so much juice, right? But like, why is goodness not enough? And it seems that this culture that they're in, it values and it recognizes this almost unattainable to many people level of greatness that you have to achieve in order to consider yourself a value. And I, I just think Essel's question to him is so important because it's that one that we can ask ourselves and we can ask each other in our daily lives. Like, why is goodness not enough? So what, what stuck out to you about it? Because I'm really glad to hear that it did resonate with you as well. I think it speaks to a false sense of value when it comes to greatness, because to me, greatness tends to be a moving goalpost and it's ten, it tends to be defined by other people, not by you or not by the individual. And I think what Essel brings to the table, and it's really reflected in that great flashback sequence where he sees, you know, he holds the bell in his hand and he has this conversation with her where she wants to be his is one she wants to be next to his ear i i, I can't remember the actual the actual dialogue with her but she just delivers this fantastic set of lines where she is go ahead it's interesting i think because one of the things she specifically says is she's like i don't want to be your woman i want to be your lady, your lady and she specifically lady. and I, I know i'm trying to do the accent, but she specifically says your lady and i just think that that is fascinating again david lowry he's so brilliant in the scripting but she says that, but her character later on literally is only identified as the lady. Mm -hmm. She has become that thing. Maybe we'll talk about her a little deeper when we get there. But anyway, yes, that's what it is. She, he, he says, you are my woman. And she's, I don't want to be your woman. I want to be your lady. She's saying, I want you to make me, I want to be Facebook official. Yes, but I think it's beyond that because you can interpret <laughs> that as being status-based. Like, I want to be important but i think what she's saying is i want to be important to you i want to wake up next christmas not in a brothel but in your bed where we can share the birth of our of christ together where we can go to mass and not let it be a joke and i don't think she's pushing religion on him i don't think she's doing any of that i think what she is doing is representing what it means to be decent what it means to be a human being not a prostitute and not a queen she's not looking at the lowest and the highest and trying to get out of the low to get to the high she just wants to be valued she wants to be there she wants to be seen by him and so listening to her say why is goodness not enough essentially i think part of her asking that is saying why am i not enough because i'm not great I'm not a queen. I'm not in a position where I have this high stature. But instead, she's not also saying, I'm your whore. In fact, she makes this great joke 
where he goes, I'll give you, you know, I want to give you money. She goes, I have your money. And, you know, the, the, the romantic comedy writer in me would say, but I want your heart. And she doesn't say that, fortunately. Thankfully, but yeah. She, but she does indicate that she matters, that he matters to her. And she wants to matter to him, which makes the ending sequence or the supposed ending sequence that much more heartbreaking, uh, which we'll get into. But I think that whole scene really allows us to relate to her because she's not just a piece of property. She's not someone who is trying to get some kind of stature. She really does care about him and he cares about her. But much like the rest of his life, he has no confidence in that. He has no confidence in doing something great. And I think he falls behind the curtain of greatness when it comes to that. Greatness has definition. Greatness is you will do this, this, and this. Here is your quest. You're going to complete task A and then task B and then task C. And at the end, you'll get the greatness trophy. Goodness is more ambiguous because goodness can be defined so intimately and so independently that Aaron, our interpretation of this show, the goodness of the show is defined completely differently by both of us because I will watch maybe 20 movies a year. You'll watch 200. And so the value of what we talk about on the show, we have to find some common ground. So those 20 movies or 30 movies or whatever that I watch will probably have to be watched by you if we talk about them on the show. But if we try to define what greatness is, we're now going to go to Next Best Picture and say, well, they're doing this, so we should do that. And in the midst of that, we could lose our identity based off of what we're trying to do. And honestly, listeners, what you're hearing right now is a little bit of a history of the last year where we've kind of redefined what we consider good. Now, we both agree that having quality audio so that you're not hearing dogs in the background or me saying um about 50 times is something the listener wants to hear. They, they want quality audio. And I'm full on in agreement with that. When I listen to a podcast and I hear crackling or I hear people bumping into microphones, it gets distracting. So there are things that we definitely feel make the show better. But I think we're both in the same place where we can know that the show, if it's valuable to us and valuable to the listeners, in that order, to be honest, that's good. That's goodness. Greatness is something else that may or may not be attained, but you and I are in a position where we don't want to pursue greatness. We want to pursue goodness. And I think just like with Garwin's journey, goodness prevails and it's actually better because it means something more to him than greatness. Again, greatness is defined by someone else. He sees goodness as being able to say, I'm ready. I like that. I like that a lot. That's really great. <laughs> or good. <laughs> it can be good. It's fine. Not You're not going to be able to use those words the rest of the episode without <laughs> trying to qualify them. All right. So we have that exchange of dialogue and then we get the moment with his mother where she's giving him this magical sash of protection saying, wear this and you will not come to harm. This is another reason I sort of kind of wanted to believe that it really wasn't his test to undertake 
thinking was this was meant for someone else, but now that it's meant for him, oh crap, I better go conjure up something to protect my son because he's not going to make it. And I really did not intend for that to happen. I intended for someone to die. <laughs> and uh, well, he's going to die if he goes on this journey without this. The pentagram is featured prominently in this, and it took me a minute to get over this because there's some sort of pentagram that is attached to Satanism now. Uh, you know, it's like any symbol these days, Patrick. I, I have been accused of, not accused of, but people have told me like, oh, you got to be careful. You can't, I'll do it on the video so you can see it. But like this okay symbol, right? To me, it's okay. Like I, my dad, I've used this my entire life. It's it literally, your fingers are saying like, okay. And apparently, and it's also a little game where you put it down, you know, under someone's POV. And if they see it, you get to punch them. But like, apparently it's like a neo-Nazi thing now. And so anywho, symbols can mean many different things where I'm going with this. And so pentagrams, historically growing up to me, it was, that's a sign of the devil. And they are used in that context in some ways, but they're used here. And it's actually very different in Arthurian uh, myth. They're a magical symbol of protection. They actually have a meaning that includes Christianity. So there's, they're supposed to represent these five different groups consisting of five parts. It's the five senses five fingers, five joys of Mother Mary, Catholicism basis, five wounds of Christ, and then the five virtues of knighthood. And what we're going to focus on is the five virtues of knighthood because that is what is kind of being explored in Garwin's quest. But I do love the framing of the shot during the Christmas game when the knight is dead and we get an overhead shot of his body briefly laying on the ground, slain with his head off to the side. And he's there's a pentagram. At the, it's essentially what is the round table, or would be, is in there in the center. And for this to happen, and essentially like mar with blood their virtues in a way that like probably is him not upholding them by doing it in the first place. It's just really interesting visual kind of way to show that. But the five knightly virtues are friendship, generosity, chastity, courtesy, and piety. And essentially what is going to take place here is this quest. And we get a little bit of a like revisionist take or, uh, you know, a different, an opposite type of view of what you normally see on a quest where someone goes through these challenges and overcomes and learns lessons because of them. What we see happening over and over with Garwin is a failure. He does not do well in them over and over. He, he does not succeed every single test. It's like his actions are never done from a fully giving heart, but always with some sort of expectation for return. Always, always, always with his own self-preservation in mind. And it's almost like he's oblivious to his own lack of virtues. And he feels to me like someone who believes in courage as being a virtue, when in fact it's not even one of the five knightly virtues. Like, his actions speak to me as someone who thinks that that's the way that make you great, is by being courageous and brave. He even says that, right? In that line earlier to Essel, he says, what are, that's how brave men 
brave is not a knightly virtue. <laughs> it's not one of the five. And so I wanted to kind of go through these. And we first see him, the first one is called A Kindness. Also in the special features, I'll tell you one of the great things to watch is a whole featurette about how they came up with the different fonts for the title cards. I know people don't like everyone. There's divisive opinions about whether they like them or not. I love them. I just think they give this a sort of artistic flair and style that I enjoy. It's a chapter book. It's a chapter book is what it is. And they're different too. There's different fonts, but the painstaking way in which they went through to create these fonts is a great example of the minute level of detail put into every facet of making movies that you never ever think about and it's one of those little things that when i watched that it immediately reminded me be more forgiving be more caring and gracious when i'm talking about movies and critiquing them and trashing them because of what it people put into crafting this art whether you like it or not i don't care that's your you have your right to an opinion and if you dislike having those cards there or the font that they used that's fine you can say you didn't didn't work for you at all but you need to respect the days upon days upon hundreds of hours put into thinking about the detail of what that was going to look like and making it so specific to what their goal was and it's fascinating to watch this feature ad i just i can't recommend it enough i was like blown away and, and patrick i thought of you the whole time because you're like a font guy and so I was just thinking about, man, if Patrick could see, like, what they put into this is nuts. I don't know if those are on the Voodoo. Does Voodoo have the special features for the I'll, Green Knight? I'll take a look. I don't, well, I didn't, I didn't watch that version. I have a, a different digital copy, but let me, uh, I'll take a look and okay. see. If they do, I'll definitely Sometimes, watch. occasionally Voodoo will actually show this, have the special features available. Usually not. Anywho, the first one is called A Kindness, and it is the test, essentially, of generosity. He comes upon a scavenger. He's coming across what is clearly a war-torn land. And it's very Keegan, who I was not aware was in this movie. It was a big shock to me, know him from several other films, and was like, oh my gosh, what is he doing there? So that was kind of fun. And essentially, this guy wants him to spare some coin in return for giving directions to the Green Chapel. And our hero, (laughs) if we should call him that, Garwin uh, flips him. Basically, it's like flipping somebody a quarter, essentially, is the equivalent of what he was doing. He's just like, okay, fine. Like, you won't shut up. So here's a minimal amount of money that I will give you in order to shut you up. He ends up getting robbed, left for dead, tied up under a tree. His His sash and his horse and the Green Knight's axe all stolen by the scavenger and he also gets chastised by the man who tells him all i asked was for a little kindness right a little generosity but you couldn't do that Uh, did you pick up on this whole knightly virtues coming across the quest line as we went i didn't honestly i i think i i did pick up on the fact that we're dealing with specific challenges that are happening my goal in watching this both times was to connect the dots and my wife watching it for the first time was really giving kind of my mirror thoughts or mirror reaction because she was watching it for the first time and so she was reacting the way i react the first time like 
dude, just give him some money. Or that's so that sucks. Why did they take his stuff? When the when the word interlude came up, she's like, why do we need an interlude? This thing is slow. And so it it was one of those things where I wasn't necessarily tying into that, but I love that concept, the idea that we see this half-hearted, this incomplete attempt to just get through the quests. And get credit. And get credit. What I what I did notice was the fact that when you watch him in these sequences, they're all a means to an end. They're all learning opportunities. And yet he misses them completely. He misses being in the moment. So this is something completely out of left field that I don't think Lowry necessarily was trying to get at. But I feel like his goal was to get to the chapel. He knows that's his quest. That's his greatness quest. The goodness that we talked about before exists in those five moments. Beautiful. So to watch those things play out and know that he's he can't see the forest through the trees or that he's not living in these small moments where he's able to appreciate the things that he's actually able to do to show kindness, to show generosity, to be a a helper. These are all almost like inconveniences for him or at the very least, there are ways to get him to the next thing. And so watching it from that perspective, I think we get a heightened sense of him missing the big picture by missing the smaller things that he's experiencing and what they mean. I love that. And he also has a vision during that time, right, where one of the coolest shots in the movie, it does this 360 pan around his tied up body and we see it like him decomposed his skull and he's he's nothing he's essentially imagining himself as he's never getting out of this and i took it as a very again surrealism in play but it felt to me like a person going through the mental process of giving up you're considering the cost of I could just lay here. I've lost. I am not really a knight. I really don't have it in me to keep going. And it spurs him on, right? He ends up coming out of it. He wiggles his way over to his sword, cuts himself free, and is able to keep moving. And I think it's constructed in such a way that it makes it so fascinating because you want to root for this guy. At least I did. I wanted every test. Every bit of progression, I kept waiting for the moment where this was going to be traditional. And he was going to do something nightly, and he was going to overcome and learn from these lessons. And so he gives himself free, and you want to think, okay, he's learned a lesson, right? He was very unwilling to give. It resulted in this horrible actions against him. Next time, he's going to get his stuff together. He's going to be different. And so we come upon a meeting with St. Winifred. And this is the, the one that kind of talks about courtesy. And the first thing he does is he wanders into this stranger's house. Going back again to self-preservation and selfish need. He wants a place of warmth and comfort to sleep. And so he crawls into the bed and just goes to sleep in a stranger's bed. 
and ends up waking up and being prodded by this ghost who is like, why are you in my bed? <laughs> you aren't supposed to be here. You literally just broke into my house because why? Because he wanted it for himself. And that is the reality. And, and I love that they toe the line, Patrick, these things that again, I love the word relatable to me because it's what makes him such a compelling character. He's not doing, he's not committing murders. He's not actively bad. He's just making choices that are all about himself and completely bypassing their effect on anyone else or what he, any sort of respect to other people in their, in the taking of what he wants. And so he meets her and she tells him this cool story. We get a lot of fun little myth here about how her head's down in the pond and could he please go retrieve it? And he's like, what the heck? Again, visual sequences are amazing. Love it when he's diving down. Just, just movies, just so gorgeous. But one of the things is like when he goes to do this, she asks him to do this, his response to her, after being caught in her bed and chastised for that, his, what are you gonna give me for doing it? And he wants payment to go help her out. Again, not a knightly virtue in the slightest. So we see him come upon this next area and my heart sank because it felt like nothing had changed. I can't agree with you more. I think you have this notion of a guy who sees virtue as something to be attained, but can't believe that doing the small things is part of that i will say this about lowry i think some of the dialogue in this movie was just cracking me up not like not like i'm rolling on the floor laughing but even that whole sequence with him and her when he says your head's right there and she goes i know it appears that way but it's actually in there and like even earlier when he's talking to the king just before he's about to leave and it looks like the king is about to say something dramatic and instead he's puts his hand to his mouth and he goes, my tooth hurts. Or when he touches Garwin's face and he just rubs it and there's this dramatic music and he goes, you have some dirt. <laughs> and it's just these little quiet moments that I think just make the movie very personal it doesn't feel like we're listening to this high brow language even though it's used and the whole setting is that way so just want to give you a little sidebar there of just i love the dialogue and this this scene is one of those examples but yeah i think watching him play this out you would, what i thought going into it was he was fooled by these scavengers and now he's not going to let his guard down. That's how I interpreted it. That's how I saw it, that he's learning that not everybody's good. He was getting something. He thought he was giving the amount that he needed to to the scavengers, and he ends up getting scavenged himself. <laughs> when we get to that scene with St. Winifred, 
what we see is I think him reacting to that previous quest or that previous encounter. And I think he's just trying to save face. I think he's got that self-protection on, but I think it was justified. And you got to recognize that for him, this is kind of bizarre. You've got this woman who is saying her head's in the lake and yet she's talking to him. And so he's sort of running with this and he's kind of just kind of running, rolling with the punches. And so for me, I, I don't know that I had empathy for him, but I definitely had sympathy because if it were me and I got tied up and I had to get myself free and I'm being woken up by a ghost, I'm going to take advantage of that. I don't know that I've ever, I don't know that I've ever asked a ghost for money or for payment for doing something for them. So this is probably a first for him. So I don't know that it was necessarily surprising. And for me, I didn't necessarily think of it as something like, man, are you not learning? But again, this is from the eyes of someone who wasn't picking up on the fact that these were virtue quests. Yeah, no, I totally understand that. And I think that's what's great about the movie. Well, I say lots of things are great about the movie, obviously, but that's one of these things where it's fun to talk about and break these things down. And will be interesting for you to watch it now, a second time after we go, or a third time after we go through all of this. And you'll have all of this conversation in mind, and it'll be intriguing because you'll see it through a different set of eyes. In a sense, one really cool piece here is that this St. Winifred inclusion is one of a couple of places that David Lowry goes out of his way to include the culture and the Welsh mythology in his Arthurian legend story. One of the other examples being the giants that we see in the next session, they are alluding to a part of myth that is supernatural occurrences uh, that kind of historically are part of this world, but they were part of the folklore from this Welsh history. They were called the the Curi or the Suri, and they were there living in the world alongside witches, dragons, and monsters and such. And so Winifred is another example of this because she was a Welsh saint and the legend behind her, which I'm sure none of us knew going into this, right, is that she was supposedly beheaded and Ultimately, this spring sprung up where her head fell, and it was called the Holy Well or St. Winifred's Well, and it became a great pilgrimage location uh, where many people claimed to have been cured of ailments over time. And so it's really intriguing to me that she's put there in this way and tied into this story because it's obviously sort of mythological in nature to have this character who was a martyr and a saint whose head created this well and here he is kind of showing up beaten and battered and he's going into her well to get her head which is what made the well spring up in the first place and he's leaving there refreshed and ready to take on his journey anew which is kind of indicative of its curing nature historically so i just find it really cool the way that these things were all woven together in these different mythologies but he moves on from here and 
This next section is probably the best he is in the entire film, in my opinion. He's essentially just journeying with the fox for a while, and he cares for the fox, it's, you know, quite a bit. He brings him into the cave and lets him share in the warmth. He feeds him hallucinogenic mushrooms. Uh, he, he ends up getting the fox's advice. The fox kind of blocks him from taking the giants. Another example of him trying to take shortcuts. He just wants to get to the Green Chapel as quick as possible. And so he's happily willing to let someone give him a ride. And the fox is like, no, you don't need to do that. It's really interesting to me wondering about who the fox is, but we can talk about that. You know, later the fox speaks and influences him directly. And so the failure of friendship test, in my opinion, is that he does not, he builds this friendship with the fox. That's the good part. But ultimately, he betrays that friendship and shows no trust in the fox. The fox specifically tells him, you will find no mercy no happy end your doom is at hand he says go no further he says stop do not go to the green chapel and he doesn't listen and yet he had built this friendship where the fox had taken care of him guided him helped him along the way and yet he fails that as well um did you how did you kind of respond to the fox guide in this in general this was very much one of the more symbolic moments of the movie. And not just because my wife pointed out, she said, is the Fox CG? And I said, I think so. Because of the fact that we, it would be difficult to get a Fox to do these things. And then when it started talking, you kind of said, okay, well, this Fox is definitely a fantasy character. What I thought was interesting is it, it seemed like a spirit guide, someone who offered companionship to him that at a time when he needed it and i think that when he has that confrontation with the fox this is probably one of the more blatant moments that you've pointed out where he is giving up the small thing for the big thing in terms of what he sees as more important so greatness he trades goodness for greatness his own life and this is a little ironic, right? Because he is very much about self-preservation. And the fox clearly says, your doom is near. You're going to die. Dude, you, your life's over if you go here. And he's like, no, I have to finish. Why? Because greatness is what he has to achieve. And so I think if this is what Lowry is going for, this is probably the most blatant of his mini quests on the way to the big one because of the fact that he clearly tells the fox who is giving him a directive no i can't do this i am really on the path to my destiny if my destiny is death then so be it and really if we hear that kind of ideology we think oh yes he's noble but in fact he's stupid because you could live a happy life and you're almost being given permission to walk away from this. Now, first time around, you're thinking, no, you don't want him to give up this quest. These are distractions. All these, and that's another way you could actually look at all these mini quests. These are distractions for him. Are they deterrents to allow him to persevere? So speaking to, he's gotten not sash to be confused with Percival. Percival, yes, different. Yeah, there's St. Persevere. Is that a different? That's the other night that we don't talk about. He has a different poem. But when you watch this 
particular sequence play out, if you're looking at it from that lens or through that lens, you could interpret it as he is persevering. He's actually getting stronger. He's growing up and nothing is going to stop him from fulfilling his quest. But if you look at it differently, it's yet another way that he has given up what would make him happy for what would make the world happy or what the world says is happy. So I think it's a, I think it's a really great coda or not coda, but a really great semicolon to this, to this journey, because I think it's the most obvious and the, and the Fox looks cool, by the way. I like the way the Fox looks. So did you have any ideas around what the Fox was? Was it just a Fox to you? Just a random spirit creature or do you feel like it was somebody else specific in the story i i thought on my first viewing that it was saint winifred because he brought her head back and she had the coloring of a fox and so i thought okay so now he's got a companion he's helped her out maybe this is her way of paying him back but it doesn't necessarily line up because we never see her again. Unless, this is a question I had, was she the new queen? The actress that played her, was she the new queen? Oh, yeah. So I wondered the same thing. And I noticed the resemblance in this viewing and in the vision, right? At the end of the movie. I don't know if it was the same actress, but it sure as heck looks like her, which is another fascinating idea and you know perhaps it speaks to him being kind of smitten with her or taking a a wife of saintly value over the whore in in a way i think the fox was morgan lefay and so i feel like she is with him the whole way guiding him trying to protect him kind of making sure he trying to get him to do the thing he's supposed to do in the right way. And he keeps failing and she sees it all. If she's the Fox and the old woman, because even the old woman is in the room. Remember when he does the uh, sexual act with the lady. And so I feel like it's her saying, listen, you've not learned your lesson. And if you continue, because it's clear to me now you've gone through all of these challenges and you have not gotten it, you're not going to succeed. And I need you to turn your butt away (laughs) because you're going to die, my kid. And you're not going to get us what we want. You're not going to achieve our goal. So that's how I took it. I love the idea of Winifred. And I kind of want to explore the concept of Winifred being in the vision more now, actually, after we get off this. And I have time to go dig into the internet and see if anybody pulled that out and wrote up a big piece about it or something. But after Winifred, he does go on. And this is where he comes upon the castle. And this is a humongous part of the original tale. So this is very much part of the adaptation. He comes upon this castle, a lord and lady. In the actual story, the lord is named Lord Bertilak. That's played by Joel Edgerton. It is ultimately revealed in the real story that Lord Bertilak is the Green Knight. And it's kind of like that here. You get that sense because at the end of when he's about to leave, Lord Bertilak says, I'm going, I'm leaving, gone. And the last thing Bertilak, well, the Lord, tells him is, we won't be here if you come back through, as if it's going to magically disappear, right? Like, he's part of this whole creative, magical quest idea of the Green Knight. And he's put there intentionally by Morgan Le Fay, the witches. 
And I think that that all plays into it pretty strongly because of the fact that the lady looks and is played by Alicia Vikander. So you have this as the, it's called an exchange of winnings. And this is more like the idea of going into his chastity, which he feels terribly by not just letting her kiss him, but by obviously giving in to her sexual advances. And probably my favorite, second favorite line, I guess, in the entire film, also uttered by her, is when that happens and she says, you are no knight to him, as it is one of the most scathing lines I've ever heard. And it's so calmly said to him, just like nonchalantly, like in recognition of what she already knew, you're no knight. Like you gave into it, you did it, and it's clear that you don't have this virtue. He also fails to make his deal with Lord Bertilak in a fair way. He does not exchange his winnings, obviously. He does give the kisses, but he doesn't go any further than that because he's trying to preserve himself. He doesn't want to tell the truth because the truth could get him hurt because he's effectively cheated on or he's, you know, fornicated with this man's wife. And I just love how he gets called out for these things with her. You know, she says, you are no knight. And then the Lord says to him, and this is all it takes, this one act. And you return home. And, oh, and, and, and he says, he challenges him when he's going to go and do this quest. And he says, and this is all it takes, this one act. And you return home an honorable and changed man. Um, as if he is going to go through all of these challenges, fail over and over and over again, but yet somehow get to the Green Knight and undertake this one final part of this test, and he's going to be better. He's going to have made it. He's going to be a brave, knightly person who is worthy of sitting at that round table. And so he's constantly called out, but this section is so important for like hammering home his failures over and over and over. Uh, but what did you, it's got that surrealism element to it, right? Because of her and how she talks. Sorry, one other thing I'm going to mention, and then I'll shut up. But when we're talking about her, the lady, and playing two characters by Alicia Vikander, there's a meta piece of dialogue in here that I particularly love. She's introducing herself to him when he first gets there, and they're in a library, and he's kind of noting all of the books. And she says, all of them I've read, some I've written, some I've copied. They're tales I've heard, songs that have been sung to me. I write them down and sometimes, don't tell anyone this, sometimes when I see room for improvements, I make them. And I thought that was a brilliant little piece of meta dialogue that both kind of speaks to the fact that Lowry is making improvements on this famous story, but also speaking to the lady's potential effect on Garwin and how she is seeing room for improvement in him and attempting to make and write these changes in him and help provoke those and giving him this opportunity to again prove himself, which of course he just, as always, miserably fails. Some of the observations I made, I'll just kind of hit the quick highlights. I, and you can give me a, a point of clarification here. 
the sash was stolen by the bandits, by the scavengers, and a new one was crafted for him. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Just making sure I, I caught that. And they both have the same effect. I think. Yes. Okay. So just making sure. Yes. Oh, yes. So, so to me, I did the second time around definitely look at the surrealistic aspect, not just that he was running into a, a lady that looked like his woman. <laughs> and what I think is really interesting, Aaron, about her performance is that he seems to have power over her as Essel, but zero power over her as the lady. And I think in some ways, Lowry is a, allowing a little bit of redemption for her. Knowing, it's almost as if he's caring for these characters to a point of knowing what's going to happen or what supposedly will happen in Garwin's head where she will not be denied her ladyship at this point. And so watching the events take place, she is the one of the couple who is the strongest. And that's really depicted in that whole monologue where she's talking about, she asks the question, but why is he green? Why green? And then she goes in to really kind of answer her own question. And it's a phenomenal set of lines, a phenomenal monologue, very much in the traditional sense of medieval storytelling. And what I loved about that scene was watching the Lord just kind of be in awe of her and go, yep, that's who I married. <laughs> he's the most kind of, I won't call him a doofus by any means, like, but I think he's really eccentric. I think he's really surface level. And she's the one that runs the house. She's the one that essentially handles the the events or the things happening in the castle. But when I look at this the second time around, it definitely feels like a world created by Garwin because he's in a castle where he sees tapestries that are essentially showing his journey so far. And obviously, who would be able to do that? You know, How could you get to a castle where or be in a place where your story's been written already, where she, Essel, is the lady, the same actress playing both. This feels like a dream, but it feels like a dream that is very much grounded in a, that is grounded in a level of reality because of the fact that we're not seeing crazy colors and things like that. And that's what I think is really great about Lowry's ability to go from the real to the surreal is that he doesn't really give you an indication. Or if it is, it's very small. So the scene with the <laughs> the the naked giants, as I like to call them, it's prefaced by Garwin grabbing some mushrooms blindly and then eating them and then throwing up, and then we get to that sequence. So I like the fact that Lowry gives us that and lets us know, look, I'm I'm not going to try to tell you that this is a real story. This is happening in reality. But I'm also not going to give you the the Wayne's world dissolve that we're now in fantasy land. And I think that's where this scene or this whole sequence is so much stronger than the others. Not better or for worse, but I think it's the strongest because of the fact that it's kind of doubling down on the fact that we are at the height of 
Garwin's journey of these virtues and we're being shown through his world, through his unreliable narrator, how that's played out. Honestly, I think this is his conscience at this point. I think the castle characters are his conscience and just beating him senseless, telling him, you are no good. You are no good. Why are you doing this? And that line, and this is all it takes, this one act, and you return home honorable and changed man. What's he saying here? He's saying all this stuff that you've experienced, all these failures are going to be made up because you fulfilled a promise to get your head chopped off? Really? Is that really what's going to be virtuous? Are you kidding me with this? And I think that that leads Garwin to the ultimate showdown and the reaction that he has, which I think is incredibly beautiful because it's not the act. And I know we haven't gotten there yet, but leading into it, it's not the act itself that is virtuous. It's everything leading up to it and everything that he's learned. And the thing that he says is acceptance and his contentment to having his head chopped off that really make that moment virtuous as opposed to, Oh, I got to the end. I'm going to beat the boss. I'm going to, you know, have the sword drawn and I'm going to do what I need to do, fulfill the promise. And that'll make me virtuous. No, it actually matters now because of everything else that he's experienced. And I think that the scene in the castle really kind of exemplifies that. Yeah, it definitely does. And so it's important to note here as we get to the green chapel, that it definitely diverges from the original story and in a very big way, because this is much more ambiguous in the way it ends in the story in the regular poem garwin does not tell the green knight that he wears the sash just like he hid it from the lord and that's because he fears death in spite of all his virtues and yet in the movie he does take it off ultimately and i love the way that we are launched into this vision this showdown first of all visually again astounding to me the way the effects are they're so minimalistic but so freaking powerful and effective combined with the sound design but when he walks into the green chapel and the green knight is awakening and kind of breaking off of being kind of grown into this chair and this room and like coming off of it and waking it's just Oh, it's awesome. And obviously it's intimidating. And I think that's part of the thing, right? You see this as you're walking in there, like, what could you possibly be thinking at this point? You have no chance here. And they have a bit of a conversation and he goes to get his head cut off and he flinches and the green knight's like, hmm, uh, excuse me, but uh, you flinched, sir. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to sit still and let me give you this blow and you see him just completely breaking down and realizing like this is your moment of death and you've done nothing of value up until this point you've shown no character and he says to the green knight is this all there is and green knight uttering one of the other best lines in the movie says what else ought there be and we launch into this awesome vision of himself, this surreal future where we see him succeeding, coming home, a champion, ascending to the throne after Arthur as his nephew, 
and we see him not really necessarily being a good king. His son goes into war. His son, I think it's his son who dies, clearly. We see him getting married. We see Essel watching, as you mentioned before, from afar, clearly spurned. And we see him dying without any honor at all, really. The, the ruin comes to the kingdom because of him, is, is the way I read that. Is He brings his lack of honor, his lack of character, his lack of virtue, going back a fraud, ultimately brings dishonor and ruin to the kingdom and all of those around him. That's how I viewed it. And this great shot of him pulling that sash out and then his head getting cut off and uh, you know, visually like stimulating you and showing you that thing. And then we flash back to the present and he tosses the sash to the side and says he's ready. And to me, it does like very similar to what you just said. It sort of turns this story around and into one about being at peace with yourself and who you are as opposed to living under this impossible virtuous code that has been thrust upon you by society. And I, I don't know that I fully agree with it, but I think that's what it's saying is this is the world that has been put forth. These are the parameters of which we judge you, the greatness that we talked about earlier. And it's almost impossible to maintain all of those, you know, we don't live without sin as Christians, as believers in, you know, in Christianity, we're never going to achieve sinlessness, right? We may live under this code too. Essentially we do. We're going to make, we're going to fail at times. That does not affect and define our character though, because we aspire to do things in a greater way even though we know we're going to fail sometimes. And we can live with ourselves because of that. Here, he feels, I think it's a little different. I don't know that it's quite a parallel to Christianity because I feel like he's saying, this is an unattainable code to live under. You will never be able to really be truly chivalrous. And so all you have is your honor. And if your honor means just dying, because you're a no good person deep down with no character. If the only act of character you can have is on your way out the door, then so be it. And the knight seems to be David Lowry. This is his story. This is his ideas, him saying, well done, my brave knight. And it is a moment where he is finally showing bravery. He says, now off with your head. And one of the coolest parts of that, Patrick, to me, the last line, and is the knight, the green knight, saying, well done, my brave knight, to Sir Garwin. It is the first moment someone has directly referred to him and given him that respectful title, as if he has earned it in this one singular choice, as if he's like found true nobility and improved himself, <laughs> even at the cost of just dying. So how did you unpack this? And like, what does it leave you feeling? Well, I think when we look at this whole journey, 
I was reminded of the scene early on where he's asked to look around and he's asked, what do you see? And he goes, I see legends. Garwin sees legends because he sees the end result. He wasn't with Lancelot or Percival. Percival? I don't remember any of the other knights besides Lancelot. Uh, Bedivere. You, you don't see their journeys. You see the end result. You see medals around their neck. You see them together celebrating and telling stories. And we all know that when you tell a story, you're going to add things to it. When I had my running accident back in 2014, I jokingly, what one, what was a van that hit me is now a semi truck that actually ran me down because it had a death, you know, it, it wanted me to die. You know, that's, those are the stories that we tell, you know, when you're in high school, the joke is that you kicked a 30 yard field goal or 25 yard field goal. But by the time you get to be 45, 50 years old, that field goal was like an 85 yard field goal with three seconds left. And you know, it took all you could to make sure that it went through the uprights. We exaggerate stories because they're important to us and they make us feel great and they're fun to tell. And we love getting the reactions. And there's a nugget of truth in all that. I mean, look at the internet. There is a nugget of truth probably inside every conspiracy theory that's out there. And the danger is taking the whole thing and saying, all of this is true. No, it doesn't have to be that way. We can parse stories and look at articles and talk to people and really get to the truth of what's being said. That's a fact-finding mission. But when it comes to legend, when it comes to Arthurian stories and the importance of these stories, it's about adding and it's about being able to amplify the things that mattered. So when you hear a story about Sir Lancelot or Sir Bedivere, you're hearing about the great things. You're not hearing about their screw-ups. You're not hearing about their failures. I was on the golf course with my brother today, stinking it up as usual. And he told me, I think we were on the 18th and I was chipping for, I think, three over. <laughs> and he said, look, if you want to feel better about yourself, YouTube golf is hard and it will queue up several professional golfers hitting some of the worst shots that you've ever seen. We don't see that when we're watching the PGA Tour. We see Tiger, we see Phil hitting these amazing shots or shots that we could never hit. Why? Because they're the best of the best. These are the guys that made the tour. There's a reason why they're so good and why they don't seem to make mistakes. Why they're not hitting it into trees or in sand traps or in some neighbor's backyard. And I think when we watch this sequence play out, what we get is a man who sees what it's like and what it means to be honorable that goes beyond the destination and about the journey. And I think if we look back at Gawain Garwin, see, I did it. Darn it. If we look back at Garwin. Almost made it. Almost made it, man. Ah, goodness, not greatness. They're going to have to die now. <laughs> off with your head. Off with my head. Off with my tongue at this point. But when we look at Garwin's journey, we see the flaws, we see the screw-ups, but we don't see the failure of his journey. At the end, he agreed and he was willing to die. He was willing to exchange the blow that he gave one year ago. I think his heart was different when he chose to do this by him removing the sash. I think that was an act of laying his pride down. 
And what's beautiful to me is that line, well done, my brave knight, now off with your head. It's so gentle. It's not this knight who, as you mentioned before, doesn't get crazy, doesn't yell, doesn't get terrifying. He is very calm and very almost fatherly in this moment where he is he gets right next to to garwin he says well done my brave knight and then he takes his thumb his tree thumb whatever that kind of thumb is and he just rubs it across his neck and then he says now off with your head and i think the ambiguity of that the fact that we don't see a chop that we don't hear a chop leaves us open to say okay He's a knight recognized by, to him, probably the one who he needed to hear that from. And if he lived his life after this, if he was able to go back, he will still mess up, but he will have the grace knowing that it's okay. And and you mentioned, yeah, as part of our faith, that's that's how we live. We live in a world where sin is abundant, where our flesh is in competition with our spirit. But grace abounds even more. And I think for Garwin, he's sensing that. And whatever his life is, whatever the rest of his story is, whether it's with or without a head or with or without a life, he can rest easy knowing that he did say that he did do a good job. And, you know, as as a believer, it isn't lost on me. That Lowry uses a phrase, well done, my brave knight, which echoes the the words of God who says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I mean, it's very much an echo of that. And I think that that's meant to be that way, to know that our life doesn't have to be filled with boxes that we check, that we did all the right things. But did we learn? And did we understand? And are we better because of it? So if you want to take it out at a macro level, not necessarily a faith-based level, are we doing enough that is considered good and not great? And I think that leaves the ending to me very satisfying, even though we don't know what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, and and it is such, there is so many parallels to like the Christian faith. And I mean, that's intentional. Arthurian legend is that built in as well, but you can even think of it as that final choice being like, do you run from the reality of who you've been? Do you get away from this? Do you try, do you do something that is inherently sinful or of poor character in order to preserve yourself further and then move forward and try to change? with that change coming from the trigger of the sin or the poor choice, right? Or do you just make the decision in that moment to accept your your fate and do it gracefully? It's almost like accepting Christ in our world, right? You're saying, I'm not going to sin no matter what. I'm going to accept it, and whatever my fate is at this point forward, it is. But I have changed myself from this moment forward. I have made the choice to do go on this new path. And I am a new person. And whatever the consequences of that choice, whatever happens to my life because of the things I've done in the previously, they are what they are. I'm making this correct choice. 
and, and I am starting here and I am a new person, no matter what. And I think that's what Lowry is saying is that that's the desirable path, right? Versus I am going to be a better person in the future, even if it costs me making more continued poor choices to build to that foundation, right? You're doing it, but you're building, you're trying to build it on a shoddy foundation. And ultimately it's not going to be successful because you're doing it in a bit, you know, you're building it on lies. You're, you're not, you're, your character's really not there. You're still kind of dreaming of just taking the shortcut to becoming the brave one. Right. And, and yeah. So looking at, looking at, at Garwin, let's assume that his life extends beyond this. Let's assume that that symbolic thumb across the throat was the beheading. Every life or every choice he makes after this, for better or for worse, will be recognized. He'll learn from it. And like the the faith-based approach, he's going to be repentant. That's the life of a believer is you accept that Christ is your savior. And then it is a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly recognizing when you sin and repenting and saying, okay. I know that that's not right. What can I do better? How can I make that 180 turn? And I think that that's what we get from from Garwin. Even if we don't see an extension of his life, we see that turn. We see that acceptance of the fact that he is not the same person that he was when he left. He is without the conveniences of the world. If we take this analogy even further, doesn't have a horse, doesn't have mail, doesn't have a sword. All he has is the thing that is going to be his undoing, the thing that is his changing, which is the axe. That's what I think is really interesting, Aaron, is that he didn't get to take a sword with him. He didn't get to take Excalibur, the thing that he used to cut off the knight's head. He has this burden, this cross to bear, which is the axe, the, the thing that is going to be his undoing, the thing that is going to kill him. In the same way that, you know, Jesus had to bear his cross on the way to Calvary. We see the same thing where he has to lay it down and he has to wait. That was something else that was interesting was that he got there early. He got there, I think, Christmas Eve morning. And he had to sit there and wait and wait and wait. And when the night eventually woke up, he really defied all the assumptions that, that Garwin had. He wasn't there waiting for him. He was asleep. In fact, he said, what day is it? Or is it Christmas morning? Is it Christmas? And he goes, yes. And have you come to fulfill your end of the bargain, essentially? It's almost like he, he didn't really care. He was like not waiting in anticipation to cut this guy's head off. This was just what needed to happen. And I don't know, you could carry this to another conclusion and kind of ask, well, what would have happened if he had never shown up would he have come back i don't know it doesn't really matter that's not the story lowry is telling but right. it, it it's it's interesting to see how the green knight responded to him that it wasn't one of anticipation it was one of oh okay you're here all right let's do this thing yeah very much so i completely agree and and i think that's what makes this ending actually way better than the original poem and so much more fun to talk about and dissect, rewatch the movie with knowing the ending is coming and 
the tying of the characters together, the Winifred thing makes me now I've got to go research that after the podcast too. So yeah, it's great. And I appreciate the conversation. It's been fun. I'm glad. And I think we should probably leave it at that for this one. Sounds Call good it a green night. Oh, he did it. He did it. He did it. Well, yes, let's end it right there. We have more exciting stuff coming up in the new year. We're working on our schedule right now, but we're grateful for everything you've done as listeners, as contributors, both in our Facebook group and in Discord and all over the social media webs to help make this show what it is. 2021 has been a, a great year, and we're hoping that 2022 is even better. Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.